So we're honoring and celebrating uh, Reformation uh, Sunday. So I'll take a little bit different tack today with it, and because uh, I think if you don't know this history about Martin Luther, his deep, deep desire was not for division, but was for unity of the church. Sadly, it became evident not to, it didn't take too many years to discover that it was division seems to be the human condition. Um, and so then, but throughout his life, I even read a passage last night, a lengthy passage, just three years before he passed. Um, so the Reformation really launches in 1517, and he begins writing extensively in 1519 about unity and disunity. In fact, you know what our, our confessional book is called? Our, doc, our, doc, our book of collected confessions? Concord. Yeah, it's called the Book of Concord, right? Um, to have concord is to have agreement, agreement, or actually you could say unity. Um, that's the idea. What are we one in, right? And our universities are called concordia. So it's that whole idea, that Latin word of, of unity. So it's interesting because I think that sometimes in, uh, in uh, we live in an age, and by the way, I don't know that... It waxes and wanes, wouldn't you say, in history, people's willingness to listen to one another? Because Luther's era was a horrible time, too, of discourse. I mean, they were nasty. They were often very nasty. Yeah. Just that, but it was normal debate and state, you know, kind of put it, stating your position. And, um, so it's waxed and waned, how we talk to one another. But I, we're not talking to one another right now, are we? I, I, what's a better way to say that? I said in the sermon, you all can help me. I said there's, there's uh, having unity and then, uh, or common ground, right? Finding common ground. What's the opposite of that? I said staking out your position. Right. Tribalism? Tribal, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Because it's, it's not just in theology. It's just no. culturally as a yeah, whole. Engines. Yeah, politics and right. social economics. Yeah, discord. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly there's unity, harmony, and discord, right? Concord and, you know, disagreement. I was just thinking of common ground, right? Where do we find common ground? We just aren't doing a lot of that right now, There's a, are we? Stopping no. and saying, hey, what do we share in common? We don't do a lot of that. There's a, so back in the Reformation era, you have a general cultural consensus on things like what is justice, what is truth, what is God. You know, the, Even if you read like the computation of the Augsburg Confession, so when the Roman Catholics respond, they actually agree on a lot of stuff, right? And so there's a general kind of cultural worldview that's shared, you're in an era now where there's really no consensus on anything. So in other words, we don't need, so say, well, we want to be for the common good. Okay, well, we have 55 different definitions of what common good is. Or what is justice? We have 50 different competing definitions of what the word justice means. And so it's not a surprise that people kind of hunker down and talk and hang out and be with the people that they are naturally with. And we see that in social media, right? The only people I see on social media are the people I agree with. Right. The people that I only, you know, that's, so it's not just in politics and, the, and those things. It's in theology, it's in history, it's mm -hmm. in, we've got these, this tribalistic mindset. And unfortunately, if you're a history geek, and I know you are, what solves that, unfortunately, is bad stuff. Right. When there's war or pestilence or something that causes people to naturally ha basically have to survive. Right. When they have to survive, they're forced to work together. And that's the sad part of human nature, Right. right. Well, like even here, it's a great example here in Pocatello. I, I said in the sermon that mm -hmm. this is really the first community where I've worked extensively with a local ministerium group of pastors. Because in the other communities I lived, there were a lot of Lutherans. So the Luther we just hung out with other Lutherans. That was unhealthy and not smart. 
It doesn't mean, and by the way, this is the problem. I have guys in my own denomination who think because I meet with other pastors in the ministerium that I'm light on my Lutheran theology. You know, and I say to them, you know what, it actually makes me sharper. Because I'm asking, what, what do you think we believe? You know, and it's fascinating to hear these guys sometimes about what they think we believe and teach. And I go, no, we actually, no. <laughs> That's not what we teach or, or believe, you know. And vice versa. And vice versa. Because I'm asking questions like all the time. Like, this is great, like in the Baptist church. We were talking about this the other day. He goes, oh, yeah, we had six salvations this week. And I go, <laughs> okay, what does that mean? Wait, 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 what does that mean? And then I just stop them because they look at me like, well, how do you not know what that means? <laughs> and he goes, oh, well, it means it's, you know, when we had our altar called, somebody responded, right? Somebody responded, prayed the sinner's prayer. Are those familiar terms to you, right? No. A call to the altar, and then there's a sinner's prayer. You find it, look it on Google, sinner's prayer. And uh, then that's a salvation. And then they wait for that person to say, okay, now I want to be baptized. But there's not a lot of formal instruction, very little. Not much formal instruction. They just kind of keep coming to church. And then they say, okay, now I want to be baptized. And it's just, it's been so fun because when we sit together, I go, okay, I get that. We use different terms. You know, we use different terms because we love to baptize an infant where God pours out his grace on him, and then we teach him. You know, and when the time comes when they say, I want to confess my faith in Jesus, well, we call that confirmation. So we just kind of use different terms and different timing and different modes of instruction and so forth. But what we share together is like a lot, a lot. I, in fact, I laughed, you know, I asked the guys uh, two years ago when we did the 500th because I said to them, hey, these solas we have, do you agree with them? And they do, absolutely. They're like, well, duh. In fact, they have five. I forget what's the Soli Deo Gloria. Yeah, to God alone be the Lord. Yeah. So they have five. And we have three, which we summarize in Christ alone. That's how we summarize that. Um, so it's just, it's just fascinating. Now, every once in a while we'll come across something where I'll go, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You just said you believe in grace alone, but you're saying they have to do this thing. And then they go, and then we do this long talk. And I go, hmm, still doesn't add up. I'm, but I'm okay. I mean, I get it. I mean, do they love Jesus? And are they, I don't know, are they introducing to Christ and his grace? Yeah, I don't know. I'm okay. So, sorry, I'm not trying to become Baptist, don't worry. <laughs> or maybe you're hoping for that. I don't know. So, um, but it's, it is so fun to do ministry in this place. It is just so fun. Because when we do our, our guesses, we guess that about 15% of our folks sitting in worship are grew up, grew up Lutheran. And so we don't, you know, there's certain language you can use in some settings. I was just in Texas. They have a church there that worships about 1,500 people. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, what percentage of your people? He said, oh, about 85% grew up mm -hmm. Lutheran. I go, mm -hmm. that makes for a different way of talking. Yeah. Right? This makes for a different way. Of, like when I do confirmation classes, my parents love it way more than the kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're sitting there going, okay, remind me why we baptize babies. Remind me. I don't want to look dumb in front of my kid. You know, or something like that. You know, something like that. It's really cool. It's very fun. All right, we're in chapter uh, 11. Um, actually, no, we're not. We're actually, we're now we're in 13. Sorry. Launching the first missionary journey. And then I want to do a little excursus here on John Mark. If you got this handout, this is a good one. This is kind of a compilation that I, I subscribe to Bible Gateway. It's a free app. It's a good one. They have other resources other than having a whole bunch of uh, versions of Scripture. 
which is always very interesting, y'all. I encourage you, if you're doing study, if you're doing any study, like of a passage, it never hurts to look at what other translations are because all of those mean that a certain consortium of scholars said, we think this is, this is the translation that works here. So it's always, to me, very interesting. When I'm doing sermons and Bible study, I have like four versions out on my desk, you know, and commentaries, and then I have my phone and I have my computer going so I can kind of quickly swing back and forth between versions. It's interesting because a translation is a, is a commentary, isn't it? In many cases, it's, a tr it's an interpretation. So a translation is an interpretation. So it's always healthy to look at that. But we're going to look at John Mark a little bit here, too. So chapter 13, where they were prophets, right? So he, um, he says, set apart. So let's, let's do this. this. We'll just start from verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, okay, son of encouragement. We've already been introduced to him. Simeon, called Niger. Simeon is a Hebrew name. Okay? Simon, Simeon, one of the brothers of, uh, of sons of Jacob, of Israel. Um, Lucius of Cyrene, okay, I think he was a person of color. Menean, this is fascinating, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So, part of the household. So he wasn't a servant. Almost like Moses brought up in the household of Pharaoh. They call him a prince of Egypt. That's a little fanciful. We really don't know the circumstances of Moses's, but he had some privilege. He wasn't a slave. Um, so he was in, you know, like if you see a lot of those uh, British shows, there are um, like a valet to the, to the Earl, you know, that kind of thing. Or it might be the, the son or daughter of the chauffeur who plays with the other Royal, they, so they're raised in that household because they all live together. So he's not really like a slave, but he's, there's a certain amount of, so he comes from that household, which could be, he could be as high as like a cousin, but we, we don't know that. But, so it's, it's, it's a little risky to ascribe him too much, but it's, anyway, it makes a point here. And then Saul. So look at what they're saying there, right? See the diversity of the group that's already gathered here in Antioch very early in the history and life of the church. Because we're here at about, oh, 15 years after the crucifixion or so. 15, 15 years or so. And so set apart, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now we don't know how that was said. We don't know if someone spoke in a tongue. We don't know if there was a prophetic vision. All we know that it was eminently clear to this church these people need to be set apart and they felt it was absolutely divinely guided and directed uh, by the Holy Spirit. So do you notice the context of that? We have tried to be faithful to that. I don't know about the fasting part because usually we have lots of food. <laughs> but when we make decisions as a church, this probably wouldn't hurt us to take that model completely even. Fasting is never a bad thing because fasting helps uh, focus your attention a little bit. The purpose of fasting is kind of with those hunger pangs is to, is to say there's something else that matters more. It's kind of that idea. It isn't that I'm making this great sacrifice for God because you're going to eat in about six hours or whatever. It's really how does this focus my attention on what God is calling us to do. So it's very common practice both in the Old Testament through Judaism and so forth. So worship, fasting, praying 
is how they discern the will of God. That's always good guidance for us. In fact, I would tell you that for your own decision making. When you're seeking the wisdom of God, counsel for God, I think it never hurts to do that. Um, and worship can be, right? Does worship mean it has to be at 8.30 or 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning in a building? No. I mean, I, my family, this is kind of a cool thing. I, and I never appreciated this till I was much older. My, um, my dad played piano enough to kind of play hymns, pound them out on, from the Lutheran hymnal. And about all through Lenten Advent, we did devotions, and Dad would pound out, a, and we would sing, and we would do devotions and light our Advent candle, or, you know, do that. We did it all the time, and we did it. We do it. We had. We did it with our kids too, not nearly as faithfully, because I was working all the time, is what it seemed like. You know, I'm working on Wednesdays, but they, um, but that was worship for our family. I mean, I'll tell you what, Christmas Eve. My goodness, I, I, it make me so mad. Because we're German, right? So we open presents on Christmas Eve. So as a kid, we went home. We had to read the Christmas story. We had to sing carols. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, come on. <laughs> we already been to church. Come on. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, there's an aspect of it where, um, I mean, there's this whole ketone thing where your brain becomes more alert. And you're, oh. you're not so sluggish. And so it seems to me like that's an aspect of why people fasted. Mm -hmm. it, you, you become, once the hunger passes, you become more aware and you're just sharper, you know. Anyway, I just... Maybe that's more not a question for you then. I mean, if you're not aware of that, it's, but it is. I do think that's an aspect of why they did it as well. No, I believe you. I'm sure. So much of it depends on what you ate. If I just had a Geraldine cinnamon roll, it ain't going very well, <laughs> right? Yeah, your blood sugar goes. My blood sugar, and then, you know, so I'm a mess. But if but if I'm eating properly, you know, I'm sharp and sharper. So no, it's good comment. I think so. So let's keep going. All right. So within that context, they set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That has already been spelled out because God has already alerted them to be the apostle to the Gentiles, um, missionary to the Gentiles. Remember that Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. They're both missionaries. Peter is not the president of the church. He is not the pope. And I'm not trying to be anti-Catholic. That's not my goal. I just, I just want to go, guys, it just wasn't that way. I mean, you made Peter the, the first head of the church, and it just wasn't that way. James was the first pope. It's a goofy name to use for him. It would be wrong. So, anyway. They would say bishop, which is actually a little bit more accurate. He's overseer, right? Right. That's a little bit more accurate. The bishop of Rome, right? Right. First as, opposed to, as opposed to daddy. <laughs> right, right, right. And they, yeah, anyway. So. Um, so here we go. On Cyprus. So here we go. If you've, and you've got maps and all that kind of stuff, too. So they first set up from Antioch. Three guys in a boat. Off they go. So they head to Cyprus, land on the eastern edge, Salamis, and then they make their way over to Paphos. Um, so the two of them, set on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia. Where, um, and it says John was with them as their helper. So there's three of them. So that's interesting. Now that's interesting. That's an interesting comment on the Bible, too. Two of them 
it, so someone might say, oh, see, the scripture is inaccurate because there were actually three, right? Well, that's because it's talking in verse, no, I've set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So that's the two of them. John is just a helper. That's correct. I agree. That's how we would read that. Yeah. But it's the whole context. People do this all the time. Oh, yeah. say. People do it all the time. So they'll call that a textual variant, or they'll say that's an inconsistency. And they do it like with the Easter story. Oh, see, one version says there was one angel, and the other one says there were two young men. Oh, must must, must got to throw the whole thing out, right? Got to throw the whole thing out. <laughs> and it's, a, it's a, only a contradiction if the one says there was only one guy. Right. Now you got a contradiction. But if it says a young man said X, there could have been John Mark there, too, you know, or whatever. So, um, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, isn't that interesting? Because clearly, they've been set out as the missionaries to the Gentiles. Why do you think they go to synagogues first? Are you going to find many Gentiles there? They've been tasked with being, to being the missionaries to the Gentiles. Probably comfort. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're with their people. Right. So like if we go and start a mission, for instance, I actually do go and try to find some Lutherans. I mean, that sounds funny. I, just because we kind of speak the same language, there's certain things we share in common, there's certain practices that we kind of understand, or Protestants even. I'm not going to the Catholic Church. That's a little awkward for me, and they wouldn't like me anyway. But I mean, you know, I mean, like some of the things and ways I do it. But with other Protestants, we probably get together and share certain things in common. And then from that, create an opportunity to go out. Yeah, so I think they're looking for a base of operations a little bit. Yeah. Probably also a little political protocol in this, as well as putting your finger on the pulse to see, or, or on the temple, to see how hot it is against you. Mm -hmm. Okay, are they going to let us here, or there's going to be a stoning Yeah, they're going to fight us, or yeah. are they going to help us? Can out? we get in here safely? Yeah, or fair enough. Gonna... Yeah, Elaine? I was just going to say, I think it's political as well. Yeah. I think there's a background issue. Yeah. They're looking for a Christ. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, f I call it low-hanging fruit, right? They're looking for some low-hanging fruit because you almost always can imagine there are always some who are sitting there going, like, I can't tell you how many people over the years I have found who've gone through my life in Christ class and, or even with communion. This is always interesting to me. When I have people who come to me from other traditions and I tell them, hey, here's what we believe about the Lord's Supper. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he means it. He's present there physically for the forgiveness of sins, just as certainly as he died on the cross. Jesus is there for the full and complete forgiveness of your sins. You know, you know what's fascinating? All these people from different denominational backgrounds say, I believe that. All the time. I believe that. And I go, well, your church doesn't believe it. But I mean, I mean the church you attach yourself to. But they'll say, oh, no, I believe that. There's a lot going on there. There's something very special, something different, something more. It's really interesting. I, I find it all the time. So I find this the case, too. Why not go to the synagogue for all of these other reasons? We share some commonality. They still see them. They self-identify as Jews, right? They self-identify. They're like, we just know who the Messiah is. Now, they're not stupid either. They know how radically that's going to change the equation. This Christ whom you crucified is now God and Lord. That's Peter. I'm quoting Peter there. but This Christ whom you crucified is now God and Lord. That doesn't play well, per se. But they are wondering and hoping that there may be some people who have always wondered about Isaiah 53 or about Psalm 22 
or what's the juxtap or the Daniel passage and so forth about a humble or the Zechariah passage and Malachi and he'll be from Bethlehem and the Nazarene. He's not fancy. He's not you know. There's always a crew who may have been students of the word and so there's some low and they always do get some converts from the synagogues. All, virtually always. Doesn't I mean, Paul also says later in one of his letters that he's first for the Jew, then for the Greek. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, even in his priorities and the way he writes. Right. And so part of it's he's kind of doing it. And you could also say, I've this was a commentary a long time ago, but somebody said, if you look at Christ's mission, first to you know to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and mm -hmm. to the ends of the earth, they're basically living that out every time they go to these cities, right? Correct. That's the other part of it. Yeah, it's kind of a microcosm of all those things. So they're just hitting those synagogues. And then because they're Hellenistic synagogues, most of them, right, so they all speak Greek, that's also an entry point because you're in a Greek culture. Mm -hmm. So you go to the culture that's the most familiar, which is Greek-speaking Jew, and so then you've got an entry point. It's like, hey, who's, you know, who's your buddies? Who are your business contacts? Who are your whatever? And it's somebody you have a common language with, like you're saying, and then they can actually extend out that way. So it's smart logistically, but it's also, I think, symbolic of Christ's command and what Paul says about Jew first, then the Greek, that sort of thing. Right. So... Here's what I really appreciate about this. It's this, this wonderful combination. Um, I'm just visiting with some friends around the country, and it's, it was just so fun to talk about where Christianity takes place, where it's healthy and vibrant, and where it's growing in places, is this wonderful combination of complete reliance upon the Spirit of God and then total commitment to doing it the best possible way, using the best possible techniques and resources we can use. It's this really interesting thing because you can go, you can fall off the road on either side, can't you? On the one hand, you can just sit around and chant and wait for God to reveal it in the sky. Or on the other hand, you can ignore prayer and scripture and reflecting on God's will and being silent before him and allowing God to speak and just frantically use good business practices and strategic planning to move forward. That's always the challenge, to be frank, in a church like ours is to make sure that we have that right balance, which is going before the Lord and seeking his counsel humbly, right, and allowing God to speak, but then also working your tail off with the best possible resources and methodologies that we can find that are God-honoring, right? It's that balance. Uh, they do this. This is what's, you can see it just in our group. Why would they go to the synagogue first? We've come up with about five strategic reasons why you do that. And so these guys are not dummies. I mean, you know, they got a plan, and uh, and off they go. Please, Rufus. So, which do you think is easier, and those times to be able to share Jesus, or now where you have big Christian, big letter C and little letter C, yeah. and everybody identifies as a cultural Christian? So, I'll cheat on you a little bit. No one come. No one says Jesus Christ is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, no one believes without the Holy Spirit. So, that's the trump card. No matter what our techniques are, no matter what the culture is, no matter what it is, in the end, the person without the Spirit of God cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. And it is always and only, I believe that I cannot through my own reason and strength come to faith in Jesus Christ or believe in him, but the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel. Now, that's the, that's the baseline. Now, having said that, I believe today is much harder, other than we're legal. But in many ways, the church saw its, has always seen its greatest exponential growth, true growth, uh, in times of persecution. I mean, it's a very, very funny thing. I'll tell you, as a pastor and a leader in the church, there are times when I say, Lord, should we be praying for persecution? You know, because the, the, the letter to the church in Laodicea is, you're lukewarm. 
spit you out. I'll right. spit you out, right? And I'm afraid that Western Christianity, that's a challenge we face. Is, you know, God is significant in, in people's lives at about fourth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if a better option comes up for me, I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have a better option, I'll do that. I'm not sacrificing to go to worship, sacrificing to be in the Word. And I don't, that sounds very legalistic, and I'm not trying to pound on anybody. It's a challenge we face where God is number one. God number one doesn't mean we're frantic about God all the time, but he shapes and colors and adjusts our thinking in all ways, all the time. That, to me, is the measure of my life in Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. In other words, all my decisions, all the things I do, and I'm not frantic. It's not like I'm praying to say, Lord, where should I drive the car right now? I mean, it's just yeah. idiotic. But seriously, it's like when I drive, do I drive graciously or like a jerk? And I want to drive more graciously because of Christ. And so forth. How do I get my money? How do I spend my time recreationally? How do I worship, pray, all those things? Well, it's interesting. As, as, a, as a father, as the kids left, I started having a different prayer technique. I would... I would pray God do whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, right. And they didn't like when I said it when they were around. They were like, no, not really. Right. <laughs> right. And you never, no one's wishing harm no, on anyone, no. ever. Now that, you understand what I mean, though? Because when I, as a student of history, and I read through it, um, because people have sacrificed tremendously for their faith for, for Jesus over the generations. I mean, so in that era, it's a new word. It, but it's offensive. It's an offense and a scandal. Right? The Greeks are going, if your God ain't as tough as Hercules, <laughs> right? This is idiotic. Guy's a criminal. Died a criminal's death. And, and for the body. Jews, <laughs> right, saying, so right, he's weak for the Greeks and the Romans. Yeah. For the Jews, it's a scandal. It's an offense. Um, a crucified Messiah. He's supposed to be better than David, not worse. So that so it's eminently hard in that era. But in our area, our era is people have been inoculated against Christianity. They all think they know what Christianity believes and teaches. Everybody thinks that. Even immigrants from other countries like, oh yeah, that's it. Jesus and he died and they they th- they put their trust in a failed failed C.S. Lewis has some really good comments on the difference between a pre-Christian and a post-Christian, mm-hmm. where he talks about like the pre-Christian, kind of the noble pagan idea, the yeah. Roman mm-hmm. or the Greek searching noble for savage, truth. Yeah. Right. There's a, the Greek and the Roman searching for truth that was pre-Christian. It's kind of like virgin soil. Mm-hmm. But the post-Christian is like trying to return back to that. And that's really, really difficult hard. to do. Really and so that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons. So yes, there's parallels to that era and those sort of things in terms of the, you know, kind of the universal language like English is now and Greek was then and stuff like that. But it's a hard parallel because post-Christian isn't exactly the same. The interesting thing I was going to bring up, so I don't know how much you've been reading, but um, our sister denomination in Germany, the SELK, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if you've read some of their stories, but because of the especially Iranian refugees they've gotten, how many Christians have come into the faith oh, in Berlin? Huh. So they're, they're having these new, and they're, like, they're having to do classes because it's all new for these people. But the, the Iranian, and there's a few Iraqis and others in there, but they're mostly Iranians. They're Persians. Yeah. They're coming into Berlin as refugees, and as they're coming in, the SELK is doing mission outreach with these people, and all of a sudden have too, they have too many people in the services sort of thing because they're coming in, they're hearing the gospel for the first time, or there's these amazing stories of um, they had dreams about Jesus uh, yeah. and all these other things, right? So they're all kind of packaged in. So our sister denomination in Germany is baptizing and catechizing 
catechizing all these new Persian Christians that have been coming through. And so, so they're whole, not Christian refugees. No, they're no, Muslim. they're they're Muslims, but we're not. I guess I would say cultural Muslims. I don't think they really ever. I mean, they're in they're not in devout. right. They're in Iran, right? So it's an Islamic country. So you just get along to go along to get along, right? That sort of thing. You don't want to make the police mad, sort of yeah. thing. And so it's not like they really thought about it. So then they come to Berlin, they escape, you know, an oppressive regime or whatever, and they run into these Christians that are kind of organizing these outreaches to these refugees. And then all of a sudden, they have all these members now they never had before. So the SELK has ex exploded in membership in Berlin because of these Persian men. There's entire stories that you can look. The International Lutheran Council has stories about this, about these people coming in. So now they have just tons of hummus at their potluck. <laughs> 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 Combine the German potluck with the with the Persian. <laughs> that sounds awesome, Diana. Forgive me. No, I was just going to add that I think when you talk about Western Christianity, that it's the hard part is people don't feel like they need a savior. They don't believe in sin anymore. Whereas I think otherwise they look to gods and stuff like that. And now it's just like I'm my own god, and sin is truth is relevant and all that so I think it makes it harder because you don't have a starting point like you need saving right right and people right. don't feel like they need saving now and that I find is the hard part to reach people because where do you start right yeah that was our problem in Japan in the early 80s when Japan was like flying high economically worldwide they're like why do everything's good you know everything's good so talking about sin yeah, it's like irrelevant. Like you need it, yeah. and people are like, I don't need it. Yeah. Life is good. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about uh, Sean looking for the parking spot. Lord, if you find me a spot, I'll quit me drinking. Oh, never mind, there's one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I always say thank you. Very convenient. So, yes, thank so you. Pastor, this is, so this is from 2015. It's the headline, Iranian and Af Afghan Muslims in Germany are converting to Christianity en masse. Yeah. And it says, um, the SELK has drawn international media attention as a result of a large number of Iranian and Afghan converts in their congregations being received into fellowship. And it's just, you know, hundreds of baptisms sort Why of thing. Why wouldn't they go to the state church? I'm fascinated by that. Oh, because they wouldn't do evangelism. Right. The SELR, we do evangelism. That's an interesting mm -hmm. fact you should know, too. Yeah. The, the churches, like the ecumenical movement, and they all join together, you know, and they become more and more socially liberal. It's like, oh, God, we would never evangelize because we could never say that our God is better than your God. Right. Right? And where we're still at, gosh, if you don't have Jesus, you've got a problem. Right. You know, we're like, you got to have Jesus. We want you to have Jesus. Because without him, we're up the creek without a paddle. So all these Iranian yeah, and Afghans are being baptized by the hundreds in Germany, of all places. So, so. Here's, a, here's a cool story just in our community, just in ours. So one of the things I made my goal when I first came was our relationship with Faith Lutheran was not good. Yeah. It just was not happy. And, um, and so I just from day one, we began working on doing that, tuition reductions and partnerships and just doing stuff together, inviting to each other. It took a long time. About five or six years ago, I think we finally won that battle. Maybe not even, it might even only be like three. Right. Um, but where we helped them out when they were vacant and so forth. And so sometimes the language and conversation about the two churches was not kind. Was not kind. That's between the two Missouri Synod Lutheran churches in the city of Pocatello. <coughs> now think about that. I also, also, we didn't have a pastor who was engaged in the ministerium here either. So people's commentary about Grace Lutheran when I entered that group was not kind. Not, and not accurate. Not pleasant. All, only rich people go there. It's all, it's all that. There was that, that, this whole thing. 
about that. And so over time now, let me tell you where we're at today, right? Today. Those folks at Faith Lutheran, we love each other. I mean, it's awesome. I love it. We invite them. They invite us. We go to things they know. Because we're not going in saying, okay, you have to do it our way. We just go in and go, how can we help you? Right? How can we help you do this thing? And so it's been awesome. And so now our language, and now in this town, our language about each other, from the praise temple of God to the river of life to the rock to Calvary Chapel to, um, to Gate City Christian to... First Baptist, and all over the place, all these, all these different, but U, UBC, we now, you should hear us cheer for each other. And now we're like, you know, even when some people come and I'll go, and there's, oh, we moved into the area and we're looking for a church, and I'll say, well, tell me what your background is. And I go, you know what, you might want to go talk to Dan over at UBC. He's awesome. And they, they come out of that theological tradition. You might want to go over there. And John Robinson will say, you know what, you might want to go to Grace. You want your babies baptized, that, you know. Um, you might want to go over there. And, and, you know, and he'll say, Jonathan's a good guy, and he's faithful to the scriptures and God's word. And that's the conversation that's happening now. Get what I'm saying? This to me, that to me is the true spirit of reformation. Because we don't agree on all things, and we don't fake it. I mean, like this, I, like feeding the 5,000. This is a great story. When I came to, to hear, they go, oh, we'd like you to host the big event, right? The big event. And I go, well, what's the big event? Well, it's just a gathering. I says, is it a worship service? Oh, no, 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 it's not a worship service. So I go, well, why don't you send me the last three or four programs? So they send them to me. It's a worship service. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's every church's choir and it's prayers and there's an invocation and somebody gives kind of a homily, you know, whatever. And so it's a worship service. And I said to them, you know what, my denomination just, we don't pretend to agree when we don't agree. But I'll tell you what we do agree on. There are hungry people in Pocatello, and there shouldn't be. So why don't you let me challenge my congregation to help hungry people? Is that okay? And then they do a progressive dinner, and I said, yeah, we can, we can break bread together. So let's go eat a meal together. So we do the progressive dinner, and we do, and we help feed hungry people. But do you get why I do that? I'm saying we want to help people like crazy. But, man, there are some people deeply offended that we don't participate in that thing. And I go, people, I'm just trying to be honest. If we pretend we agree on all things, we're, we're lying. That's not right either. Um, I, but I would like to talk about the things we do agree on. And if we can have a reasonable, thoughtful, biblical conversation about things we don't, now we can do it. That's what we're doing in our ministry. Because that's what happens about every three months or every four months, I'll drop some theological bomb in the middle <laughs> of the table and then we freak out for a while, you know. Because I said to him, I, one time I go, I said, so dudes, I think you're dead wrong about not baptizing babies. Want to debate it? <laughs> so, I mean, so like for four months, we, it was great. And I said, we're using different terminology and you're after different targets. And I said, but I still think there's more there than what you're giving it credit for. That's all I said at the end. I still think there's more. So anyway, it's great. I love those guys. You're super. Okay, how far have we gotten? Three verses. One paragraph. I don't know that, Elaine. I, I don't remember know Pastor Barrett used to talk about that. That he, he had a thing, really, he came around to Lutheran theology. And I, I might have the aspect of Lutheran theology wrong about it. I'll, I'll Google it. 
I'm yeah. sure Google will have an answer. Whether <laughs> 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 it's right or not is debatable. <laughs> it's interesting. It's just like, remember Jesus' story of the woman who is presented to him in adultery, and they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and Jesus' famous words, right? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Do you remember who walks away first? The oldest. The old ones. Yes. Most sense. And well, they, well, no, they're more aware of their own right. sinful condition, and they also have had enough years in maturity to kind of not be the the young Turks, right? Mm -hmm. You mellow as you get older a little bit, and sometimes older people mellow too much. Because they're not, they don't want any, they don't want to argue with nobody. Some things are worth arguing over. And when I say argue, I don't mean mean. I mean saying, I think you're wrong. And I've done that in the ministerium. I said, I think you're wrong. That's an inappropriate uh, application of the Greek there. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. And then we go. Because they know I love them. I mean, they know. I just, he, if Mike Popovich asks me, Tomorrow to do some I and, and if they need ten thousand dollars for something that is significant for the gospel in their ministry I'm going to tell you about it. We I, we may not you do whatever you want, but I'm jumping in Because we need them that outpost for the gospel right down there across the street from pokey high With ten homeless people who knock on their door every day and they care for them. We don't do that. Who's doing that? Do you get what I'm saying? We don't all serve the same audience. We don't all serve. And people speak different languages. Even if they're all speaking English, they speak different languages, culturally, historically, contextually. We've got to speak many languages. So do we agree on all things? There's the problem in our current culture. If we say we don't agree, the person immediately thinks you hate them. Yes. Or you're marginalizing them. Or you're disenfranchised. That's baloney. What I do is I love you enough to engage with you. Tell me what you think. And if I disagree, I'll tell you. And if you think I'm wrong to disagree with you, tell me where I'm wrong. And let's talk. But at the end, let's do this and say, I adore you. I love them. I love these people in the ministerium. And I've had more and more chances to be at their churches. And we don't do everything the same. We don't agree on everything. But I love them. Just a quick question. I don't want to confuse it, but uh, when Jesus told, the elder, uh, told them, you who are without sin cast the first stone, it begs a question for me. Is that, is that kind of a loose translation? Because my understanding is that the Jews don't necessarily subscribe to the theory of sin, heaven, hell, that they look for the Messiah, and, uh, the Messiah, but that they don't have a sin consciousness. Oh, no. They violate the law. They're all yeah, the well, law. They're keeping score. It's, a, it's, so a, it's saying original sin. It's thing. not sin nature. Okay, we use okay. those terms. That's, a, that's much more a Pauline. Okay. The, the, talking about the sin nature in great specificity. Did the bell just ring? Yes. 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 You guys. It's your fault. <laughs> No, no, that's a, that's a meaningful point because Pauline theology is about sin nature. I mean, there's a sin nature which causes the sins. It's like having the flu. It causes you to have a bad back and cough and germs that are contagious. So the condition causes the sin. Um, so that is a little bit different, but they absolutely dealt with, yeah, we are not in accordance with the will of God. They knew exactly what Jesus was. It wasn't like we're not in accordance with law. No, no. No, that they were, that they had sinned. He's not saying any of you who are not sinners, because they might not have responded to that. They might not have identified that way. 
I'm a sinner. Because they would have counted tax collectors, prostitutes, and Gentiles as sinners. They would have been considered the B'nai B'rith, the sons of the covenant. But are they without sin? That they understand. Get what I'm saying? They get that they've, made, they've committed acts outside of the will of God. But do they consider themselves a sinner? They consider other people sinners with a sin nature. Thank you. Anyway, let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us. Hey everyone, just a quick announcement that we have the workshop on spiritual gifts happening in early November, November 8th and 9th. You can still sign up. There is still space available and you can do so on our website, glc.gracepovatello.org.